Welcome to the Art of Mathematics. I'm Carol Jacoby, and I'm a mathematician. And I'm in Jetta Thackeray, and I'm not a mathematician. Before we get started, let's review that puzzle that I left you with last time. What is the probability of randomly choosing the correct answer to this question? A, 25%, B, 50%, C, 75% or D, 25%. All right, now the answer, and you can't see my air quotes around answer to this puzzle because it really isn't an answer. At first, it seems pretty easy. There are four answers. So picking the right one randomly will happen one time out of four. So the answer is 25%. So the answer is A. Wait a minute. I picked D. Isn't you D picked correct? D. Isn't oh. that 25% too? Oh, yeah. D's also correct. Oh, wait a minute. So there are actually two correct answers out of four. Two correct out of four. So the probability is one half or 50%. Oh, now the correct answer is B, 50%. Oh, but now there's only one correct answer. So the probability is 25%. And there are two correct answers. And ah! <laughs> did this make you laugh or make you crazy or maybe mad? I think it made me crazy and made me laugh. It made my head spin. Okay, go good. In a loop. <laughs> <laughs> well, I told you not every question has a solution, and this is one that doesn't. <laughs> you did. This twisty puzzle reminds me a lot of the liar paradox. This goes back to the ancient Greeks. Some guy named Epimenides, who was from Crete, said, all Cretans are liars. Now, if you look at that and think about what does that say, it says he's a liar, which says he's telling the truth. So again, we get this paradox twisting back on itself. Now we could get into arguments about, well, is he always a liar? And are all Cretans actually liars? But let's get this thing down to its essence. The basic of the paradox is what I am saying now is a lie. If it's true, then it's a lie, and so it's false. And if it's not true, then it's not a lie, and then it is true. You get in the same crazy loop as in the puzzle. <laughs> the simplest form of this paradox is this sentence is false. But there are a lot of variations. I once saw a t-shirt that said on the front, the statement on the back of this shirt is true. And on the back, the statement on the front of this shirt is false. <laughs> okay, if the front is true, then the back is true. And so the front is false. If the front is false, then the back is false, which says the front is true. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it gets worse. Here's another one. Alice says, what Bert says is false. Bert says, what Chris says is false. Chris says, what Alice says is false. I'll leave the listeners to work this one out for themselves. That's a, that's, that's a tough one. I kept thinking, Alice threw Bert under the bus, but Bert <laughs> went after Chris. So I yeah. couldn't tell what to think. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Oh, yeah, they're all throwing each other under the bus. The interesting thing here is when Ellis throws Chris under the bus, it turns out she throws herself under the bus. If you follow it around, you're going to find that if you believe her, it comes back and says that what she says is false. So it, these things get really complicated. Now, after all these complicated examples, let's get back to the essence of this paradox, which is very simple, which says this sentence is false. Let's just look at that. Now, some people say one solution is the problem is the law of the excluded middle, which says everything is either true or false, and there isn't anything in between. Well, that's one possible solution, because then we can say, okay, this statement we're looking at is one of those that's neither true nor false. But what if we take the sentence that says, this sentence is not true, and work that one out. And again, we run into a paradox all over again. Is this making your head explode? No. <laughs> <laughs> Just my eyeballs going around in circles. <laughs> Well, yeah, math isn't any fun unless it makes your head explode once in a while. <laughs> well, I've got to ask you this. Okay. What does this have to do with math in uh, the sense that we know it? Isn't this just a little wordplay, a little trick of language just to either make us laugh or make us crazy or both? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, it turns out that this type of thing has had major results in math and logic. Take set theory. You've probably seen in the beginning of just about every college textbook in math starts with set theory. And the reason is it's the foundation of everything in mathematics. They even teach to little kids where they have them put sets together and figure out what's the intersection and the union. And you draw these Venn diagrams, the overlapping circles. Mm -hmm. One represents rich people and one represents filthy people. And the intersection is <laughs> the filthy rich people. <laughs> you define sets by properties. and You might list the things in the set, and those are called its members. You could have, say, the set of even numbers or the set of prime numbers. Or you could even have the set of even numbers that are not the sum of two prime numbers. <laughs> that last one, we don't know what's in it other than two. Last time we talked about <laughs> gold box conjecture and how nobody knows if there's anything else in this set. But we can still talk about the set. People don't know what all the dark matter in the universe is, but they can talk about it. Mm -hmm. So we think of a set of everything satisfying some property, like all the chairs in this room, all the fish in the lake weighing at least two pounds, all the 10-digit numbers. This property can be anything at all. This is so simple. How can this cause a problem? <laughs> Here's where you run into problems. The members of a set may be sets themselves, and it turns out this is very useful in mathematics in the foundations. You can build up all of arithmetic out of nothing but sets, sets of sets. And they were working on this, and all of this is going along just fine. And then in 1901, Bertrand Russell said, hey, wait a minute. What about the set of all sets that are not members of themselves? Now, generally, just about any set you think of is not a member of itself. The set of all chairs isn't a chair. 
The set of all even numbers isn't an even number. So those are normal sets. We're gonna call those normal sets. Then there's some abnormal sets that are members of themselves. Examples are the set of all sets, which is a set, or the set of all abstractions, which is an abstraction, or the set of all things that can be described in 12 words, which I just described in 12 words. <laughs> Russell asked us to consider the set of all normal sets. Then he asked, is this set normal? So let's give this set a name. We'll call it R. Let's first suppose R is normal. Then R is not a member of itself. That's what we mean when we say a set is normal then R doesn't satisfy the defining property of R, which is that the set is normal. That must mean that R is abnormal. Oh, well, if it's normal, then it's abnormal. <laughs> hmm. This is starting to feel a lot like the liar paradox, isn't it? <laughs> okay, yeah. let's suppose R is abnormal. That means it's a member of itself. So R is a member of R and so satisfies the condition defining R which is being normal. So if R is normal, then it's abnormal. If it's abnormal, then it's normal. Yeah, this is a lot like the liar paradox. And those law school entrance exams. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Fortunately, I never had to go through that. <laughs> <laughs> so Russell came up with this clever contradiction, little paradox in set theory. But it turns out that if you have just a slight crack in the foundations of mathematics, one little contradiction, it all bubbles up and the whole structure collapses. And you get to the point where if you have one contradiction, you can prove anything at all from it, no matter how preposterous. So this was something that really needed to be fixed. And so they revised set theory because of this and they tightened up the requirements on what can be considered a set. So the set of all sets has been banished. It was thrown <laughs> out. We can't talk about it anymore. It's kind of a weird thing anyway. You might have noticed that one thing in common in all these paradoxes is they're referring to themselves. Sentences like, this is a lie. This sentence is false. This set is not like itself. Those are all examples of self-reference. And it gets into all sorts of twisty contradictions, as we've just seen. Now, if you want a really good self-referential book about self-reference, I want to refer you to the book Gertel Escher Bach by Douglas R. Hofstadter. That is my desert island book. It's amazing. And it's very twisty and very funny and I highly recommend it. Anyway, getting back to mathematics. So math got itself fixed up to avoid this nasty bit of self-reference. Well, yes, they did for a while. But then in 1931, a bombshell hit. Kurt Gödel, then 25 years old, proved that there are statements of arithmetic that are true, but cannot be proved. How is that possible? I know, it's, it's really weird. It blew everybody away. But if you think of Goldbach's conjecture from last time, we'll talk about what all this means later. But right now, I want to tell you about how Gödel proved 
this amazing theorem. He came up with a clever way to assign unique numbers to mathematical statements and then to proofs, which are just lists of statements. Then he could write a statement that says, statement number X is not provable. That statement is a number, plug that number in for X and get a statement that says, this statement is not provable. Ah, self-reference. Is it provable? If it is, then it must be true. Now, if it's true, then it's not provable since that's exactly what it says. So if it's provable, then it's not provable. <laughs> oh, inconsistency. It cannot be provable, but that's exactly what it says. So it's true. Got that? Another twisty argument in the spirit of the liar. And these things go round and round. So you may have to think about it for a while. And sometimes you might think, oh, there's got to be a way out of this. But it twists around and bites you. Phew. Well, yeah. I don't know. Maybe this is a good time for another puzzle. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll do a puzzle about liars while we're doing this. This one's from the mathematical games column that Martin Gardner wrote many years ago for Scientific American. A logician vacationing in the South Seas finds himself on an island inhabited by two proverbial tribes of liars and truth tellers. Members of one tribe always tell the truth. Members of the other always lie. He comes to a fork in the road and has to ask a native bystander which branch he should take to reach a village. He has no way of telling whether the native is a truth teller or a liar. The logician thinks for a moment and then asks one question only. From the reply, he knows which road to take. What question does he ask? You got that? Well, here it is again. A logician vacationing in the South Seas finds himself on an island inhabited by two proverbial tribes of liars and truth tellers. Members of one tribe always tell the truth. Members of the other always lie. He comes to a fork in the road and has to ask a native bystander which branch he should take to reach a village. He has no way of telling whether the native is a truth teller or a liar. The logician thinks for a moment and then asks one question only. From the reply, he knows which road to take. What question does he ask? We'll have the answer next time. And this time, there really is an answer, I promise you. Next week, we'll be looking at an unsolved problem, one that had been unsolved for over 50 years that's recently been solved. In fact, two of them. Join us then. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a puzzle or something else that you'd like to share on the air, leave a voice message at anchor.fm slash the Art of Mathematics with hyphens, or email me at cjacoby at jacobyconsulting.com. Thanks for listening.